Welcome to The Thought Hackers, the show where you will learn how your mind works and discover how to change your thinking from leading experts and through inspiring stories. Good day, everyone. My name is Nathan Siegel, and with me is my colleague Hamish Baston out of Australia, and we are the Thought Hackers. With us today is a woman by the name of Samantha Silverberg. She is a licensed clinician specializing in working with individuals who have histories of complex and chronic trauma. She has spent the last eight years working across a variety of populations at the University of Pennsylvania, Mount Sinai Hospital, and as adjunct at LaSalle University, amongst other positions. Based on her own personal experiences and professional experiences of clients dealing with online harassment, Samantha co-founded Online SOS, a nonpartisan nonprofit dedicated to providing free, direct services to individuals experiencing this. Samantha runs Online SOS while pursuing her PhD in clinical psychology at Fielding University to continue this work. I'd like to welcome you to the show, Samantha. Thank you both so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, so you've got quite a story to tell. So I think the the best thing to do is go back to the beginning of what you sent to us when this thing started for you. You said around the age of 23? Yeah, yeah. So I had just finished graduate school and had started working in community mental health. I felt like that was the best place for me as a new clinician to help as many people as possible who didn't have access to mental health services and had also during that time left a very abusive relationship and so really saw it as starting my life over and during that time started working with a wide range of individuals but started having these clients coming in dealing with cases of harassment over social media And these were teenagers and young adults and older adults. And being a new clinician, you want to help everyone. And it's really hard when you don't really know what resources to provide. So I would spend all of this time looking for resources and look at what interventions can you use if someone's experiencing this. And the research was very limited on, you know, if there were symptoms of PTSD related to this, how it should be worked on. And so... This was kind of my professional life at the time. And then on a personal level, probably about six months into this, I started receiving threats myself over social media. Um, So threats to assault me, threats to rape me, uh, other really negative threats. And this probably went on for about seven or eight months. And I just didn't say anything to anyone. I didn't want anyone to know this was an issue. I had reported it a couple of times to the platform and had gotten comments that they received it, but that was as much of a follow-up as I'd received. And then probably about eight, nine months into this, I started receiving mail to my physical address. So in my mailbox, I would get letters that had photographs of me in my parking lot, um, had photographs of me in my work parking lot. And so I started to become a little bit concerned because it's very easy to not look at messages you're being sent on social media, but it's hard to avoid when you're getting these threats and you know that someone knows where you are at all times at this point. So probably a month into this, uh, I was walking through my parking lot late one night and do not recall most of it, however, was uh, 
jumped in the parking lot by my ex-partner and a friend of his. And from what the video footage that the parking lot camera saw, I was pulled into an alcove and then sexually assaulted. And at that point, I guess a security guard had seen this happen and called the police. Um, and so I have very limited knowledge of what happened. I remember waking up in a hospital and the, the way the, that law enforcement handled it was telling me it was my fault for dating that person in the first place. And so for me, on a personal level and a professional level, I really had no idea how to help myself or any of my clients dealing with online harassment because essentially mine started as that and turned into physical harassment and felt like the fact that there were no direct service organizations providing support was a huge problem. And so, you know, fast forward as I was able to get my own treatment, be able to grow as a clinician, start to meet other people in the space that are advocating for more laws and services related to online harassment, was able to link up with my co-founder and start Online SOS so that we could be providing some of those direct services. But how much did this um, attack affect you directly? Like, uh, how did it traumatize you? I mean, it, it seems that it should have, but I don't know if it did or not. Uh, I think for me, uh, probably the first year afterwards was the most difficult. So I know that I was very... Uh, during the harassment and afterwards was very nervous all the time to be by myself. So I lived alone, um, but would call someone when I was walking anywhere. Didn't really like to be anywhere late at night by myself. Um, you know, I think a lot of those symptoms of PTSD applied at that time. I suffered from really bad night terrors for a very long time. Afterwards, just sort of replaying the event over and over again. Um, and I think even now, you know, of course I do this work and have gone through my own treatment. However, even now I think, you know, I'm just more of a hypervigilant person and I don't think that I was that way beforehand. No, that's totally understandable. And hypervigilance is mm -hmm. one of the main symptoms. I mean, Hamish and me, we, we deal with different clients with PTSD hypervigilance is very common and when I had PTSD I had it too I don't have it anymore but I did have it I know what you're talking about yeah, yeah and and so I think it you know I can definitely say that was something that I was diagnosed with and again something that was then later removed but I would say at least the first year afterwards was meeting full criteria for that mm. yeah when you had the online attacks mm -hmm. and then the physical attacks was mm -hmm. that Am I allowed to ask, is, was that the same person, just to sort of put, a, a, um, put it all into perspective a bit? Did it all stop then when that ha that physical assault happened from your ex-partner? Yeah, so essentially what we had found out is that that person was able to track my IP address on my computer from like uh, like a web application that I was using. And so he had created probably 50 or 60 fake accounts under different names and was sending these messages, but because of my privacy settings, I was not reading these messages very often. They were all going into my spam mailbox. So once I had changed my privacy settings, I really wasn't seeing them very much. However, you know, once in a while I'd go to check to see if I was still getting them, 
and I would have probably two or 300 messages with different threats in them. Uh, and I sort of assumed, even though I didn't know who it was at the time, that it was the same person because the language and the content was always the same. Um, and so once the physical assault happened and that person was charged, uh, everything just sort of stopped. And that for me was the confirmation of, well, it was just this person and potentially one or two people that were engaged in it with that person as well. Out of curiosity, like when this thing started, was there, was there, there must've been some sort of triggering event, whether you knew about it or not, but and I'm just trying to get an understanding of when, like, how did it start? Was there a particular thing that happened? And this person who was charged ultimately, uh, was this person a client of your organization or some, some other? Uh, no. So this was actually my ex-partner. So mm. I had, I had left this very abusive relationship and had moved pretty far away. And, um, I think because I ended it, uh, I think there was a feeling of a loss of control. And so I started to get them pretty soon after that and had sort of wondered if it was, um, but didn't want to reach out to that person to try and confirm anything and start a conversation. Uh, so just sort of ignored it, would report it to the platform. And then it ended up being confirmed that it was my ex-partner when the physical assault took place. Yeah. Yeah. So at, at that time you were a, uh, what was the, what was the, um, uh, qualification you just completed and you're starting to work in that space it was a um, clinical yeah so I just finished my master's degree in clinical psychology and psychology become, yep. yeah and have become like a licensed professional counselor so um, like a master's level therapist that was licensed so I could take insurance in the state I was working in what sort of thoughts were you having and um, what was going on for you with when the when the bullying um, well, the, the the attack started happening online, and I suppose essentially it's it, it's it is bullying, um, and I suppose there's probably a number of other names for it—the harassment and everything that was going on there. What what were you doing yourself in regards to your thinking? And you've just come through a psychology degree um, and working in that space to um, you know, and also experiencing as what your clients would be experiencing too. What was going on for you in there? Yeah, I think uh, it's always, I talk about this a lot. I always think it's interesting that you can provide really great insight to your clients. And then when it's you yourself and you have that sense of fear or uncertainty, it's very difficult mm. to have that objective viewpoint that you might have for a client. Um, and I think at the time I was dealing with several clients who had experienced some type of online harassment and whatever sort of support they gone to, whether it was legal, law enforcement, or a school, they had not felt very supported and their families had often blamed them. And I knew that none of this was my fault. However, I didn't tell anyone. I didn't tell my family. I didn't tell friends. Um, and I think there was a part of me that did not want to burden anyone and also a part of felt if you're trying to figure out how to do this for your clients, you should be figuring it out for yourself and figuring mm. out what you need to do yourself. And I and think I suppose, I'm, uh, oh, go uh, ahead. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say, I suppose also the fact that you probably felt that they wouldn't believe you also. 
Yeah, I think it. I think it also was a hard thing to believe, right? Like uh, even as I say it now, you think who is spending their time sending that many messages to a person on a regular mm. basis? Um, and, and I think as a, someone who works in a clinical space, when I started getting those messages, my first thought was, this is someone who clearly is suffering from mental health issues because they're spending all this time fixated on me yes. and I'm not really sure exactly why, but there has to be some sort of linking event. I think yes. at the time, I often go back and wonder, did I think it was that person? And I think at the time I really had no sense that it was, there was nothing to indicate that the person would have done something afterwards. So at first I thought maybe someone had just found this or you know, maybe it was a client of mine because I was working with individuals with serious mental illness. And so, you know, I didn't know if someone had been able to locate me over social media as well. Mm. And then go, going and going through, so, sorry, Nathan, I'll, I'll, I'll just say going through all this and then coming out at the end after the assault at the hospital and the police saying that it was your fault. But what, so what did that do for you when you're you're not telling people about it that everything's going on for you and the conflict your, your work that you're doing and and you're now receiving it yourself and then to be told this is your fault yeah I think my immediate thought was at an intellectual level I knew that it was not my fault whatsoever and I think again when it's you and you are personally connected to it of course you're going to wonder whether that's true or not and mm. I, I remember at the time uh they, I guess they were trying to locate an emergency contact for me, and it just so happened that one of my friends had called the phone, my cell phone, and they had called the person back. And I remember feeling so ashamed as that it was like a male friend as he walked into the hospital, um, thinking I didn't know what I looked like, I didn't really know what was going on. Um, there were all of these detectives surrounding me, and Having him walk in, I remember feeling so ashamed and thinking he's going to think it's my fault also. Wow. And this was another uh, like colleague of mine. So he was working as a clinician as well. And so, again, I think it's interesting when we think about the disconnect between your intellectual thoughts and your emotional thoughts and then even just how trauma impacts the brain and the inability to make some of those connections and really be able to kind of regulate your, your emotions in a way that allows you to make sense of what's going on. Because I know at that moment I wasn't, I definitely was not able to do that. It makes total sense too. And there's something else I wanted to highlight for our listeners, a comment that you made earlier, that this person had created 50 different fake accounts. And this is something that's very common with uh, online abusers, which makes them very difficult to track when they do this kind of stuff. We, um, as an aside, I was a part of a social media, social live streaming platform called Blab. And one time I was on it where this person was threatening various members, including myself. And every time the moderators locked him out, he would come back within seconds with another fake account to keep harassing us. And this is a very common thing with these abusive people that they do this as a way of keeping you off balance. So no matter how many times you block them, they keep coming back, sort of like a vermin of some sort. And it, that kind of thing for yourself uh, on, the, on the victim end of it, that can be really disorienting. 
Yeah, and I think, unfortunately, we, at Online SOS, we've had a lot of clients who have had a similar experience where they can report one individual or the initial individual who starts this, they know and they have evidence that it's them. So then what the person does is creates numerous other accounts. And then at that point, if you try and report something because it can't be proven who it is, there's this lack of evidence to really help someone make a good case for what's going on if they were to go to law enforcement or speak to a lawyer or even just try and escalate their case within a platform. Yeah, it is It is a very serious problem. And if you have enough resources, you can eventually track them back, I would think. Uh, it, it, there's um, just a resource I'm going to toss out on this call for those people who are dealing with online harassment if you're having serious issues, there are two things I want to mention. There's a website called jjluna.com and a book called How to Be Invisible, also by the same author. If you're having issues with online harassment and needing to protect yourself, this author, he knows his stuff inside and out. He's a privacy expert. So, Samantha, with where you came uh, on this journey and, and going through that those um, the, the assault, what then happened to um, you've got your, your clinical psychology degree had you started up your own practice no not at the time i no. i can i continue to work in uh, community mental health okay so tell us the journey to take you into what you've now got the online sos yeah so i was still working in community mental health um and had gotten uh, was working in like various positions with uh, low-income families that really couldn't get access to mental health services and realized that this piece of online harassment was something that was popping up more and more because I would have clients who even just were having arguments over social media and then, you know, there there was limited safety precautions that they were taking as they were getting into even arguments that were then being that were creating traumatic experiences for them and they really didn't have anyone to talk with or, or process those with. So for me, it was important to do something to help anyone with any type of harassment over any sort of social media or online kind of tech thing because I think when we talk about trauma, it's often in a physical sense. And yeah. I think that now we're, we're a little bit more open to this sort of psychological piece, but I think even when we think of psychological trauma, it's still something that's happening in person more so than something that's happening over your computer screen. And so about two years ago, what I, one of my friends, Liz, who's my co-founder, and I had been talking and we ended up sharing that we had both personally experienced online harassment and we both talked about how important therapy had been for both of us, as well as kind of figuring out a game plan and getting support with finding services in order to better protect ourselves online. And so after that conversation, we probably spent like six months toying around with, well, what could we do to support other people in that situation? And we knew there were some amazing advocacy groups out there. We knew there were some great peer-to-peer -peer support groups However, for us, it was really important that we focused on the idea of professional support because we really appreciate individuals having support networks. And at the same time, we felt like it was so important for a professional to help someone process a trauma. 
you can have support. And there's also this piece of having someone trained in this work to be able to say, here are different processes that we can go through to really help with some of these symptoms you're experiencing. And so about a year and a half ago, so we started this up probably in April of 2016. And in August of 2016, we officially kind of launched. And since then, we've just been really working on on developing what our client service program looks like and then figuring out ways that we can scale this resource so that we can help individuals recover from the trauma that's online harassment and also help them get to a place where they feel safe and protected online. So we really focused on the emotional component and focusing on how the emotional component of psychological trauma then impacts the ability to heal in terms of protecting yourself online reporting to a platform or getting legal support in some way. Yeah. Yeah. Could I ask you with children, if there are sort of teenagers listening to this, that if they are experiencing uh, the online harassment and really not sure what to do with it and don't know who to talk to and just the mindset around the, the mental health side of it, not so much the, the, the computer and stopping it all there, but how can how can children, teenagers sort of work through this when they're feeling really stuck with it? Yeah, I think I think the first thing is to, if someone is just dealing with this on their own, to know that it's not their fault and that they haven't done anything to ask or deserve this. We all say things that we don't necessarily mean. I think oftentimes in the heat of the moment in a conversation online, especially with some of the teenagers I've worked with, There may be an argument that gets a little bit out of control. I think we also really see this on gaming platforms with a lot of the Mm. teenagers that I was working with, talking with a friend or talking with a group of friends while they were playing a game. Someone says something that's misconstrued, and I think that can be taken the wrong way and cause arguments. This is is whilst they're all online playing together. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. And so I, I think for me it's always been important to stress that it's not your fault. And I think that it's always worth clarifying if something doesn't feel good to you that someone's saying online, and if it continues, to really be open to seeking help, even if it's not with law enforcement or with the platform, to be able to seek support through a clinician, even if it's going to your school counselor and having a space to talk about it with someone who's not involved in it. I think sometimes parents will say, we'll just ignore it. Yeah. And I think sometimes friends will say it's not really a big deal. And I don't, I never want someone to feel that their experience is invalid. And mm-hmm. I think that's really important for people who are experiencing this or people who have friends or family who are experiencing this to just make sure they're validating the emotional experience. Because yes. I think that whether someone agrees or not, this is what someone's own personal experience is. And we want to make sure we're supporting those feelings because we're making it that much more difficult to overcome the trauma if we're invalidating how it makes that person feel. Absolutely true. The other mm-hmm. thing that you mentioned, and, and I want to highlight it for our audience, is one of the ongoing major problems to do with being online, especially if you're texting, is text messages can be misconstrued, and it happens all the time. It, it, well, like one of the famous things that you'll see online is somebody typing in all caps, which is the equivalent of yelling at somebody. And then you've got different sentence structures and so on. And it's very easy to interpret 
a message one way when it wasn't meant that way. And if you do, as you said, Samantha, to clarify by asking a question to find out whether that was really the intent or not, you can prevent something from blowing up. Yeah, I think we something that I use with clients a lot when it's someone that they know and they're coming in to work with us more on a preventative level is asking them to walk away for five minutes and then come back and reread it and see if they're still feeling the same way. So almost doing like an emotional temperature check. So if someone is feeling really upset about something someone said to them online, walking away for a little while, coming back, are you still feeling the same? If so, ask for a clarification. If your temperature has gone down, it probably triggered something for that individual to react in that way. And so knowing that you've already calmed down from that, it probably was a miscommunication, and then there's still room to clarify if it's not sitting well. I, I very much like what you say about walking away for five minutes. That's a really great strategy, which I've also been practicing myself, uh, to do with like a conversation that can be really hot, or if somebody throws something that could be considered insulting or something. If we, as people online, if we step back, as you've said, for five minutes, even that little period of time, could make all the difference in the world. Yeah, and I think uh, one of the things is, you know, when we're speaking in person, we can always kind of say, you know, this isn't really working for me or I don't feel like this is a conversation we should be having right now and step away. We can do that on the phone. And for some reason, when we're using social media, I think because it allows us to communicate so quickly, often I've noticed people struggle to be able to pull themselves away. And so Part of my work has been figuring out what are strategies for each client that's going to help them to remember to walk away in the heat of the moment, right? Because when you're already feeling defensive and someone says something, you're going to mm. react in an aggressive way, and that just continues this cycle. And so it's how do we break the cycle for you to walk away long enough to then come up with a game plan of what's the best way for me to respond now so that I don't start to feel worse or I don't feel start to feel more agitated. Mm. And don't react. Mm. Yeah, it's it's so important to be able to dial back from our emotions and the strategy of walking away, the strategy of asking for clarification is so important because if we, as you say, allow the, th the thing to escalate, we could wind up with a full-scale online war. And those things can be disastrous because you can wind up with something like what they call a flame war. And nobody needs that. Yeah, and I think often it really uh, relates back to someone's emotions in that moment and being able to acknowledge what's going on for that person in that moment. And so, again, I think it's it's interesting to me because I think there are so many strategies from clinical work that can be taken and utilized. And for some reason, we really struggle to take those. But even uh, being able to, like, name for some for oneself what the emotion is, knowing how that person responds when experiencing that emotion, I think can really change the way someone communicates in a conversation online. So when somebody comes to you, they've got this trauma going on, what's the very first thing that you do? So when, and when someone comes to us, the initial contact is actually through email. And so through our initial email, I try to really make it clear that we're there to support the individual and to really validate their experience. 
because sometimes there are individuals who we maybe can't provide the tangible support of escalating a report because it may not necessarily be harassment. However, it's still emotionally traumatizing to that individual. And I want to make sure that they still feel that this is a safe space to talk about it. And so we do that in the initial email and then we immediately schedule an intake call with myself. So through that, we talk about what the experience has been like, what they're hoping to gain out of working with us, an overall timeline of the events, and then essentially we call it an action plan, but we come up with almost like a treatment plan of how we're going to help each individual. Is it going to be through counseling with myself? Is it going to be referring to someone in their state for more intensive work? Um, is it going to be a combination? Is it going to be some help with digital security and, and protecting oneself online? Is it a case where they have the documentation and we're going to escalate it to our contact at a social media platform? So we come up with what we can offer that client and then that client is sent the action plan and they can either accept or refuse to accept, but I actually don't think we've had anyone reject anything we've offered um, that plan and then we kind of start our work together. Yeah. And you've got a self-assessment document online I noticed yeah I had a look at it what what does that one help people with so the self-assessment is just 10 quick questions and really it helps us triage individuals that are coming into our platform right. so those who are in immediate distress because we're not a 24-hour hotline I want to make sure that we're we're dealing with individuals who are feeling physically unsafe or very emotionally distressed right away so those yep. questions help us and help the person assess the level of severity and help assess what they have already. So do they know the person? Do they know um, the platform it's happening on? Do they have documentation? Questions like that really help us triage and figure out what sorts of services we can offer as well as what type of information I'll need to work with the client on collecting once we start our work together. So for people who want to get more information about what you uh, yourself and your services, your organization, where would they find it? So they can go to onlinesosnetwork.org. All of our information is on there. Um, if you type in online SOS, we pop up pretty quickly in Google as well. And people can also email us. My email is sam at onlinesosnetwork.org. I'm always happy to answer emails. Um, I'm very much checking my email all the time, especially for clients. So we're always happy to have contact that way. Individuals can also fill out the self-assessment on the website directly, and then we respond in less than 24 hours. Excellent. Yeah, that's really good. Hamish, do you have anything else that you would like to no, add? No, no. It's, um, uh, I think you've covered a lot of, a lot of uh, great information there for, for our listeners, Samantha. It's, um, it is, it's such a huge problem, but like you've, um, uh, I think you mentioned somewhere or I read it in, in one of your things was that it's it's such a silent problem. Yeah, we we think Some... it's this sort of global epidemic um, yeah. that that people are starting to talk about, but I think for a lot of victims, they feel they have to live in mm. silence and not share it. And so I think our goal is for all voices to be heard online and yes. not to feel that they're being silenced because they have to self-censor in order to protect themselves due to fear. It is a common problem. And between what you're doing and between our podcast, we're a, 
by doing this show with you, we're able to give you more of a platform, more of a voice so you can help reaching more people. Yes, and we really appreciate that. You're most welcome. And at this point, I think we're pretty much ready to wrap up. Uh, What do you think, Hamish? Yep, no, it's been, been wonderful. Thank you. Yeah, so... For those of you who have been listening, my name is Nathan Siegel. My colleague with me is Hamish Baston. We are the Thought Hackers. With us today has been Samantha Silverberg. Thanks very much for listening, and we will catch you in the next episode. You've been listening to the Thought Hackers. Make sure you subscribe and get each new episode emailed straight to you so you don't miss a show. And have a look at our resources page where you will find programs, audios and books that will create change in your thoughts.